You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church is located in Camas, Washington. You can find out more about us at www.axecamas.org. Check out our other sermons and podcasts. You can find them on iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our website. This sermon was preached by Pastor David Robinson, who is the teaching pastor at Axe Church. We hope you enjoy the sermon, and we hope that the Lord blesses you through it. Many people are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? It's in a book by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body. The last couple of messages we've done, um, a lot of the points have taken their point of departure from that book, and I recommend if you get a chance, you want to go deeper on the issues we've been going through in these last few messages, that you read that book by Nancy Piercy. I highly recommend it. But why do people think religious people are such bigots? A bunch of people out there in the world right now are believing right now that the kind of people that are sitting in rooms like this, the kind of people who are the church and who are gathering as churches this morning hate people. Some of them think that the people who are gathering around hate them. I wonder why that would be. And I wonder why it's difficult to get the good news of the gospel to a dying world when so many people now believe that the prevailing attitudes, views, and actions of religious people, quote unquote, are negative towards them, are hateful towards them, are bigoted towards them. Some people are becoming apathetic about the very questions Does God exist? Is the Bible true? Should I, is Christianity true? Should I follow Christ? And they're apathetic because they're so turned off by the people who claim that they believe those things. That even if those things were true, they would rather not believe them because of what they see as the result of believing those things. Now that's a problem. That's a problem. If the truth of the gospel has come across as hate to anyone then it's clear we've missed something as the church about living out the gospel. We've missed something about pressing into the kingdom of God. And some of us right now, we're getting maybe a little defensive about that. Like, well, hang on a second. Don't. I can tell you unequivocally that whether it's you or not, people who have been, who call themselves religious, who call themselves uh, Bible-believing, whatever it is, have shown bigotry and hatred, and it has done damage. And we're the body of Christ. We're all one. So when one of us does good, we all celebrate. When one of us does bad, we've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with that. What is the main thing these days that people accuse those religious people of being bigots about. The main basic things right now, today, if you were to take it, are sexual practices and transgenderism. Those are the things that society and culture is saying that religious people, Christians, etc., hate people who, are, who, who would identify as those things. Some people think that Christians hate people who would identify as gay or transgender. But it is not so. And if it is so for anyone here, then confession and repentance is due. And that's something that you need to work through this morning. We've been in a series called Rooted, um, a series where we're studying letters to the churches. Uh, These are letters that that the Holy Spirit, uh, through Paul, wrote and put in the Word of God. And we've been dealing with the first letter to the Thessalonian church, Um, And we've been in the same passage for the last two messages, and then this one. Um, And so if you'll get your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles, grab them, turn to 1 Thessalonians 3, 9, and we will read through verse 4, 8. I'll give you a second. If you don't have one, there's Bibles in the seats uh, around you, or if you don't have one, tap someone on the shoulder, have them grab you one. If you don't have one at home, take take that home with you. Uh, That's our gift to you. Okay. Here's here's what's written. For what thanks can we render to God for you? 
for all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before God. If you remember, they were worried about the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians, had, they had had to leave, and the Thessalonians had been undergoing persecution, and Paul and these apostles, they're sitting here going, oh goodness, are they all going to walk away? Are they going to walk away from the faith because there's persecution that's come, and they found out that they hadn't. In fact, they had remained strong. And so Paul is, is happy, and he's, his happiness, he He's giving thanks to God because, of course, everything Paul knows, everything he has comes from God. He doesn't have any delusions that it was him or his great preaching or some amazing thing like that, but that he knows that the Holy Spirit has sustained them through this. And so he gives thanks where thanks is due to God. He says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. They had been taught who Jesus was, that Jesus was God. There's the Son of God that he died, that he rose again on the third day. They'd been taught about the confession and repentance of sins and salvation and baptism. They, they would have been taught all of those things. And so when we talk about faith, usually the word is we're, we're thinking belief in God, right? Oh, you have faith. That means belief in God. Look, the word faith is far beyond that. It goes far beyond that. He's saying, look, there's a lot more. Your faith is not perfected yet. And I know that because your actions aren't perfect yet. We talked about that a couple weeks ago if you want to go back and watch that sermon. Now, it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. They want to come see them. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. He's saying, okay, I want to perfect your faith. This is what it looks like. You love each other like we love you, and if you're loving like that, God will perfect you in holiness. Holiness is perfection. You'll be perfect if you can live like that. And so, he, so he's going to line out, what does that look like? What's, what's in your way between you and loving? And he says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? You being made perfect. God's will is that you be made perfect, and this is how it works, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Why is that so high on the list? Well, a couple reasons. One, they're dealing with it in a major way. The world at this time the Roman world, the Greek world, the Hellenistic world is incredibly sexually deviant. All kinds of stuff. Their marriage was a, was a gong show. Wives were there to get children and heirs and, and money. But the men were, had slaves that they'd have sex with and, 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 and men and boys and girls and whatever. It was a free-for-all. It was crazy. They couldn't take pictures, but they'd draw pornography on the walls. It was, they were obsessed with sex. And so that's the culture that we're coming out of. But it's also important because sex is a sin. Sexual immorality is a sin against the body. And the body is part of who we are. We've talked about that somewhat. So, so he comes with that right out of the gate. This is what you all need. Abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this, he who rejects this does not reject man but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. He's saying, listen, when you're, when you're acting sexually immorally, that means just for context so that everybody's clear, anything outside of a man and a woman who are in a committed lifelong marriage to one another. If you're outside of that, it's sexual immorality. It's really quite an easy test. It's not, it's not difficult. And he's saying, when you do that, you are taking advantage of people. You are defrauding people. You are damaging your own body. You're not holding your own vessel in sanctification and honor. You're not honoring what I gave you. And so, for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about a number of things, right? We've talked about abortion. We've talked about sexual immorality kind of in general. And in both of these, we've looked at this concept that existed for the Thessalonians, that exists in the ancient world, and that exists now. Mind-body dualism. 
mind-body dualism. This is the idea that the body and the soul-spirit, or just the soul, depending on where you're coming from, are separate, distinct, that you are your mind, right? Mind being soul, but it depends how people want to describe it, right? You can come from a religious standpoint or an atheistic standpoint. They both have their different versions of this. For the religious person, it's, I'm really just a soul spirit, and the whole goal of life is for me to forget about this body, to meditate, to do whatever, to, to, to be ascetic, like, li- like not eat or like beat myself or like set myself on fire or whatever you got to do. You want to get rid of this body because you want to just be soul and kind of floating out there and becoming one with it. You know this kind of stuff. You've all heard that. That's sort of the religious version. Now, there's a Christian version of it, too. It says the body's all about sin, and the body's all evil, and the world is all evil, but the soul spirit is good. Also incorrect. Everything is fallen from the fall, and everything will be renewed, including your physical body. The atheistic version is, look, your body is nothing more than a sack of flesh that randomly appeared on this rock for who knows why, For no reason, and there is no purpose, and therefore the only thing that could even be defined as anything like personhood is whatever's going on up between your ears, and so that's who you are and the body's not. That's the atheistic version of it. And these philosophies have led to all kinds of justifications of sins, okay? Not just sexual immorality, but so many other things. And this was present in the world that the Holy Spirit through Paul is addressing here in Scripture. It was present there. Strongly. Uh, There was a a religion called Gnosticism. And and it was sort of, it's not just a religion, it was kind of an idea because different religions had Gnostic elements. But one of the things that Gnostics did was have this mind-body dualism. They separated themselves so that the body could be evil, and therefore, who cares what you did with it? But the mind was really, you know, the soul, the spirit was really something pure. And so that was what was really good. Okay? And they've made it easy. Those who have held this philosophy, those who have bought this philosophy, those who have caught this philosophy, which many of you need to check, because that's how, that's what happens with ideas. We catch them like a cold. But those who have caught this philosophy have have made it easy to justify all kinds of sinful thoughts and actions that harm other people and that harm ourselves. And today we're going to look at another area, a couple areas, where this leads to brokenness. Same-sex sexual relationships and gender dysphoria. Now, as we set ourselves to this study, these are heavy things. As we set ourselves to this, there's two things that I need you to know and understand. Number one, my sin and your sin are not cleaner or more excusable than anyone else's sin. For the wages of sin is death. Whose sin? Your sin, my sin, everyone else's sin. It's not different. The wages, what you've earned through sin, through rebellion, through turning away from God, is death. Do not look at other people and act as if your sin is cleaner than theirs or more understandable or more acceptable because it is not. It is sin. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That gift that we received through Christ's death, that was a gift that was given to me and was given to you because we needed it. There aren't people who need it more than you needed it. Or more than I needed it. We all need it the same. Okay? It's a gift for you. You don't deserve it more than other people. You know why? Because you don't deserve it. That's the gospel. We don't deserve it. Now, number two. If you believe that number one is false, you don't understand scripture or who you are in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that to to be harsh. I'm saying that to help you grow. We're here to help you grow. If you have walked through sort of this, and it would be understandable because it's out there, this sort of karma, karmic understanding of of stuff where it's like, well, I have put this much bad stuff into the pot and this much good stuff into the pot. And so God looks at me and he measures those things and it's kind of like, well, I'm pretty good with now. The person, my neighbor, and put a lot of bad stuff in the pot, right? Oh, that pastor Dave, a lot of bad stuff, right? Which is true. 
thank, thank Jesus for his mercy, right? That's not how it works. So if you believe that, or if you understand that, if you're like, people who engage in these sins, they're on a different level, there are special sins that are worse and so on, you need to stop that. All sin equals death and needs the cross, period, okay? So let's, let's keep that in mind. There's a guy named Sam Alberry. I mean, he was walking through some of these issues uh, in, a, in a YouTube video for Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, and, and he said a couple things that I think are also important. He said uh, about these issues, he said, look, first, you can't avoid it, okay? You can't turn your head and avoid these issues. This is going on, and we are called, as Christ followers, to bring the light of the gospel and the kingdom of God to these issues, period. You cannot avoid it. You must not dismiss it. You must not dismiss it. It is not loving to dismiss it. I actually was watching the same video where Sam Albury is talking about uh, gender dysphoria and the issues that people go through and the struggles and so on. And down in the comments were these people, a bunch of them, almost all of them said the same thing. Oh, well, if you want to know your gender, just look down. Just look in your pants. True, but not helpful. Right? Dismissive. For someone who's hurting and going through something, you want to treat it like their pain and their difficulty is so much less than your own? Is that how we treat you when you come to us with sin? Well, just don't. No. That's dismissive. The other thing to keep in mind is that these issues affect real people. Real people made in the image and likeness of God. Who matter and who are experiencing pain. And for many people, when it comes to same-sex attractions, when people uh, identify as homosexuality, gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, and so on, a lot of times these are totally unwanted temptations and feelings that they're dealing with. So you need to understand that, that they're painful. Also, with gender dysphoria, same thing. It's most of the time unwanted stuff. And so for you to add on to the top of that, is not what a Christ follower does. You want grace for your brokenness. You want grace for your brokenness, then you must give grace for the brokenness of others. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not going to talk just so you're clear. If you're wondering where I'm going, I'm not going to act like it's not brokenness. I'm not going to excuse anything that Scripture is clear about. But I am going to ask for us to have grace like Jesus did for people who struggle and suffer. All right. Remember Matthew 7, 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You want grace? You better give it. You want patience? You better give it. You want understanding? You better give it. Keep that in mind. The other thing is this. This stuff takes real thought and real discussion and real study and real care. A Facebook meme... Or some sort of just outright rejection, like this is so simple, you don't have to worry about it. That's not love. We walk with each other in brokenness to see the redemption that Jesus Christ brings. Okay. I, by the way, just so you know where I'm coming from, I have people that I love who struggle with same-sex attraction. I have people that I love who struggle with gender issues, gender dysphoria issues. And I love them. And I would protect them like I would protect you. All right, let's move on. Same sex. In, in the book Love Thy Body, Nancy Pierce writes about a woman named Jean Lloyd. Okay? When Jean was 15 years old, uh, she had heard about this gender-bending prom that happened at the local high school somewhere near her. So she decided to wear a tuxedo to prom to kind of, uh, you know, push the limits, show her gender-bending whatever. Okay? And she was the only one who did it at her high school, and this was back in the mid-'80s, so it was, it was kind of a big deal, right? She was saying, look, I'm not going to be stereotyped. And she lived as a lesbian, um, as, a, as an out lesbian, for, for some time. And then uh, this is what happened. She describes this. She says, she began to trust the one who knew the truth of my identity more than I did, who wrote his, mess, his image into my being and body as female, and who designed sexuality and set boundaries upon it for my good. 
Now, when she started to realize that and starts following Christ, she lives a celibate life for about 10 years, learning to live and grow in love for God and to, and to experience his love for her body, soul, spirit, without creating dichotomies and dualisms. And then she says, this is what happened. To my utter surprise, a flicker of heterosexual desire emerged. As I approached 40, I certainly never dreamed I would marry, but now as I ride, I struggle to finish because my youngest child is tugging at my arm. My beloved husband, my children's father, will soon be home from work. That's not going to be the story for everybody that struggles with same-sex attraction and temptation. But for her, that is how God restored her. She recognized the issues at play, and she recognized that if God made her a woman, then the only proper the only proper sexual relationship she could have was with a man that she was married to. And she couldn't at a certain point, because she was only attracted to women, couldn't do that, so she lived celibate. And then God gave her some desires, and she married a man. Great. But here's some things that are really important about her story. She says this. Um, she wrote an article about seven things or something like that that I wish my pastor understood about my homosexuality. And this is one of the things she said. She said, during my upbringing, I heard a few fiery sermons on homosexuality. These days I hear declarations of love instead. They make me shout for joy. Amen. It always should have been so. But then she outlines a problem. And I want you to listen very carefully because this is a problem. At the same time, however, many pastors have begun accompanying this love with an eschewal of biblical sexual morality as oppressive unreasonable, or unkind. Hence, loving homosexual persons also comes to entail affirming and encouraging them in same-sex sexual relationships and behaviors. She says, although I appreciate the desire to act in love, this isn't the genuine love that people like me need. Love me better than that. I wish you knew a better way to help me honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. I was born this way, female, God did create me a woman. Please don't fall into the Gnostic dualism. We just talked about that. That divides my spiritual life from the life I live now in my body. Christ became incarnate. My very body is now part of his body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. To act against its design in same-sex sexual action harms the dignity of my body. For my homosexually attracted brothers, same-sex sex harms their bodies even more because of their physiological design and the physical effects of going against that design. These bodies will be raised again. They matter. Jean Lloyd is saying that there is a unity between her body, her soul, and her spirit. They're one. They're not separated. And that loving her means God, recognizing that God has created that unity. She's asking pastors and believers in general not to sacrifice the truth in favor of some sort of dualism just so we can avoid speaking the tough truth. Because she's saying that's actually not loving. I actually don't experience that as love when you pretend that the Bible doesn't say what it says. Or worse, you reject what the Bible clearly says just to try to make me feel better instead of telling me what I need to get better. When we say uh, that same-sex sexual relationships are okay, we're harming people. We're harming people like Jean. That's what she's telling us. We're acting against God's love for her and others when we do that. Romans 1 tells us that God's wrath is being revealed for those who, among other things, approve of those who practice sin. All sin. This is not a same-sex sexual relationship specific thing. Any sin. If you know that your husband or your wife or your friend or the person sitting next to you is engaged in a lifestyle of sin and you approve or wink at or implicitly give them the impression that you're okay with what they're doing, God's wrath is coming for that. Because you're harming people. Because you don't have the guts to tell them the truth. Loving is hard. Loving risks rejection. Loving risks everything. And if the cross doesn't show us that, I don't know what would. Gene Lloyd is saying, tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. And whatever it is, gluttony, gossip, greed, pride, 
sexual immorality, whatever it is, pornography, violence, oppression, holding grudges, whatever's going on among us, it's our job to speak the truth to each other in love, right? It's our job. You are not loving people with same-sex attraction by telling them that you approve of their same-sex sexual relationships. You're not loving people by doing that. That's what the world wants to tell you. But actually, you're being cowardly about the truth and hurting them. It's unloving to approve of any sin, period. It's unloving. I know that we bought into this idea that kindness means no conflict. I know that we've bought into that. And, and there's something to that. Because the way some people do conflict is very unhealthy and can be oppressive and can be harsh. And I'm not advocating for that. But the idea that kindness means no conflict is false. The kind, kindness is something that should come out of love. And love is something that will always push conflict. The, the beloved is always someone who there's going to be conflict with. Because you're, you're desiring the best. God chastens those he loves. Right? We do the same. And somehow we've allowed culture to scare us, frankly, into believing that we cannot and should not say things that are true about certain behaviors because it's no longer acceptable. And sometimes even illegal. If things go the way they're going, you think I'll be able to give this sermon in 50 years, 20 years, 10 years? As an attorney, I can tell you, unlikely. I still will, but probably from a jail cell. That's the reality we're in. That's the reality we're in. We're in, we're in such a place that if you want to speak truth at all, even though we know it's a loving thing to do, you will face backlash. Well, saddle up. I never said Christianity was easy. That was some other place you heard that. You didn't hear that from me. All right. We should treat people who are attracted to people of the same sex the same way we treat people who are attracted to people of the opposite sex. Which is to say, we teach and admonish that God's plan is for sex to happen only in the context of a loving, committed, lifelong marriage with one man and one woman, period. That means that if you cannot be in that kind of a relationship because you simply can't, uh, your attractions simply don't allow it, or if you're not because it doesn't happen to be the case right now that you're in that kind of a marriage, then guess what? Celibacy. Oh, celibacy. What am I going to do? Grow up. All of you were celibate for the first however many years of your life, right? You were alive and you were fine. And you were running around and you were doing stuff. Okay? Celibacy is not death regardless of what culture tells you. But that's the reality. If you're not or cannot be in a loving, committed, lifelong marriage between a man and a woman, celibacy. That's it. Anything else is sin that needs to be confessed and repented from. I'm sorry, but this is the truth. And if you reject it, you reject not man, but God. That's it. All right, listen. Because that's true, when we do something different and say, well, yes, we agree with that, for opposite attracted, these terms get, for people who are attracted to the opposite sex, but for people who are attracted to the same sex, we're okay with it. When we do that, this is what, this is what Jean Lloyd says, this is what she writes. I should be credited with the same moral agency and responsibility as everyone else in the Christian community. If unmarried heterosexuals are called to celibacy and are presumed in Christ to have the power to live out his commands, then so should I be. To treat me according to a different standard is to lower my dignity before God. I, too, am called to be holy. She flips the idea that we should accept all this on its head and says, listen, when you say, when you try to be nice, when you try to get along with the culture and say, okay, it's okay, engage in this kind of behavior, it's okay, what you're actually doing is you're separating me out and saying that I'm not called to the same kind of holiness that you're called to, that I'm somehow separate, that I'm somehow different. And that's lowering my dignity before God. That's a serious claim to make. Lowering someone's dignity before God. And that's exactly what we're doing when we do that. We're not loving. We're saying this person's less important. 
because we don't want to have to say the hard things. Sam Albury, who I talked to you about earlier, he's actually a pastor, and he is same-sex attracted. As far as I know, he is solely same-sex attracted. He is not attracted to women. He's only attracted to men. He lives as a celibate man, as a pastor, um, and he sees this compromise that the church has made in the same way as sort of singling out same-sex sexuality as some sort of different thing. He says this, it's the same for all of us, whoever. I am called, I am to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life, as you have known it, forfeit. It is laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it, and through his death, he has bought it. He goes on and says this. He writes this. Ever since I've been open about my own experiences with homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me. As though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything out of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. Think about what he's saying there. Because when we think about the the story is that if you're same-sex attracted and have to live a celibate life, that that is the ultimate sacrifice, only because we've made sex the ultimate prize. Marriage and sex, marriage and sex happens in the church too, Right? Where's the, you know, guy or guy comes to the church, where are the girls, where are the girls, where are the girls? Got to get married, got to get married, got to have sex, got to have sex, got to get married, got to have sex. It's like, woohoo, what about Jesus? Where does Jesus come into that? Because if Jesus isn't first, the rest of it's all going to be a joke. And then he says, well, that's easy for you to say, you're married and you get to have sex. Got that right, Bubba. (laughs) My wife is... She's back with the kids, so I'm good. I'm good. Let me tell you more. No. Uh, here's the thing. Yeah. And if I don't seek Jesus first, that's all a joke too. I'll never be anything to her if I'm not looking to Jesus first. Just a little side note. Marriage and sex are not everything. Guess what's not going to exist in heaven? Marriage and sex. <laughs> what will we do? Probably eat chocolate. I don't know. Listen, we have, we have said we don't care what God wants. We want to chase after pleasure, right? And in doing so, we have lifted up marriage and sex as these things. What Sam Alberry is saying is, listen, what I'm called to give up by even having to be celibate for my whole life is no more than all of you are being called to give up somewhere. And if you're a Christian right now and you're saying, I accepted the Lord, I've been living in the Lord for five, ten years, and to be honest with you, my life only looks a little tiny bit different than it did when I was not saved, then I hate to tell you, but you're not following Christ. You may be saved, but you're not following Christ. If it doesn't push up against you, if it doesn't hurt, if it's not that dark adventure that's in front of you that you can't see the end of it and you're constantly having to take step of faith after step of faith, you're not following Christ. Because that's what it looks like. All right. Same-sex attraction is a temptation that many people face. And we, as Christ followers, love all people. They are made in the image and likeness of God. And they have a temptation to bear That is difficult and heavy. We do not love them by rejecting them. And we do not love them by telling them to follow their temptation. You see, those are the two sides. There's always two sides. The pendulum swings over here and we say, gay is bad and blah, you know, know, God doesn't love. And we had people out here a few weeks ago with their bullhorn and whatever. And it's like, dude, grow up. Go back to your Reddit thing and get on your computer, whatever you do. Right? No offense if you're here. Congratulations. Then on this side, it's, no, we just got to accept everything and celebrate everything. Well, the middle is always hard because you're holding the tensions. 
and you're saying, I'm not going to reject this person that God created in his image and likeness, but neither am I going to accept the behavior that God has said not to do. That's not good for them. And so I've got to make these people mad and these people mad if I want to love this person. And that's where you have to be. It's not easy, but I can tell you that it works. The people who I'm in relationship with who have not necessarily come to the Lord yet, who are still walking through and struggling through and whatever, I'm able to have fantastic, deep relationship with those who identify as gay or lesbian because they know that although I can't go over here, I would never go over there. They know that I love them and that I disagree and that both those things can happen and it can be a real love and a real disagreement. Learning to live like that is tough. We love people sometimes by sharing their pain, by mourning with those who mourn. Some of these people are mourning. Some of these people are thinking, I never asked for this. I never asked to be attracted to people of my own gender and to not be able to be attracted to people of the opposite gender so that I can have a normal marriage and kids and a normal life. And I'm mourning the loss of that. And the response of some people is to say, oh, you're a queer. Oh, we reject you. That's not Christ's response. It never was. And that can't be our response. Our response has to be, I mourn with you. And I pray for the redemption of your body and mind and soul and spirit. I pray for that. And I can point you to the one, the only one that's capable of doing that, Jesus Christ. That's how we have to live. You know, Nancy Piercy wrote about the research of this woman, Lisa Diamond, and she found that 25% of men and 50% of women who identify as heterosexual have had at least one same-sex attraction, sexual attraction, in the past year. So that means that in this room, and for many who listen to this online or whatever, many of them have struggled with this at some level or another. It's your brothers and sisters sitting right here. You think it's not? You think it's out there somewhere? It's not. It's the people that I love in this room. It's the people that you love that you don't know about. Because you know why? Because they're afraid to tell you about the struggle. Because you know why? Because they're afraid that you're going to be over on this side and reject them. Instead of saying, come on, let's, let's work through this. Let's talk about who you are in Christ. These are our brothers and sisters, and we need to learn how to love them as they deserve to be loved according to the love of Christ that compels us to love those who he calls his. This is just one example. This is not a special example. Same-sex sexuality is one example of something that is justified and and maybe even caused by this idea of mind-body dualism. But there is another one that's become more popular and publicized in recent times, and that's gender dysphoria. Some people would say transgenderism. Gender dysphoria was the most common way to refer to it back in the day, Um, and still, it, it still is referred to that way by many people. The word dysphoria, according to the Internet, means a sense of restlessness, anxiety, dissonance, or distress, it, it, and is the linguistic opposite of a sense of euphoria. Y'all know what euphoria is? Woo! Happiness. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. That means that people with gender dysphoria are in pain, restlessness, anxiety, dissonance, or distress. That sounds like pain to me. Now, when we know the definition of dysphoria, it helps frame up the response of the Christ follower. How does a Christ follower react and respond to people who are in pain? With the love of Jesus Christ. Not condemnation, not separation, but relationship and love. That's how we respond. Piercy also writes, Nancy Piercy in her book, writes about a guy named Walt Heyer. Mr. Heyer had gender dysphoria, 
and he was a cross-dresser for a while, and then he had the gender reassignment sex change surgery. But he eventually became a Christ follower. She writes this about him. When Hire was still presenting as a woman, he began attending church. Tragically, the first church he visited asked him to leave. The senior pastor actually drove to his home, knocked on the door, and said, we don't want your kind in our church. Somebody came in looking for the love of Jesus, and because their sin was more visible than the person next to them, whose sin may have been the ugliest thing in the world, the pastor literally goes out of his way to reject this person. What would that feel like? I don't, I don't know, and I don't want to know. But he did. This is the reaction some people have had to those struggling with gender dysphoria. Instead of them showing them love in someone's pain, they just reject the person. They can't deal with it. It's, it's so different than what they struggle with, or maybe it's not. Depends on the person. This is a typical example of mind-body dualism. Now, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to show you the gender unicorn, which is being used in schools all over the country to explain to kids the postmodern conception of gender. Do we have that? Is that up on the screen? There's the gender unicorn. This is in your kids' schools, just so you know. As you can see, it talks about gender identity, and you have your choices, female, woman, girl, male, man, boy, or other. And by the way, there's like, I don't know how many now. Facebook started with like 50 that you could choose, and I think it went up to 70-something, and eventually there, got so, there were so many genders that now it's just custom. You just type in what it is. There's literally that many genders. You didn't know that, did you? There's that many genders. Then there's gender expression. It can be feminine. It can be masculine. It can be other. And then there's the sex assigned, quote-unquote assigned, as if the doctor's like, well, what are we going to assign this one? As if it wasn't medically assigned, right? Sex assigned at birth, male, female, intersex, Physically attracted to men, women, other genders, like the, of the 50, 70, whatever genders. Emotionally attracted to men, women, other genders. Okay, here's the thing that will show you the mind-body dualism as clear as a bell. If you look, the rainbow is gender identity. It's a thought in the unicorn's head. You can see it, puff, you know, classic puffing out of the head. Kids understand that, right? They know how to read comics. The physically attracted to and emotionally attracted to are these two colored hearts that are at the heart. Now, normally speaking, when we talk about soul, spirit, mind, we're talking about head and heart. Those are things that are considered to be sort of outside of the body. In this case, of course, the thought is literally bloop, outside in a little cloud, outside the body. That's how people literally think about these things, right? That is the separation. The only thing that is really body is the fact that they put sex assigned at birth across the unicorn's crotch, right? That's just your plumbing but your gender and your orientation sexually and so on, those are things that are in your head and heart, soul, mind, mind-body dualism. There's a separation. It's starting very young with gender unicorns. The idea that your gender is based on your feelings is the new normal. Your gender is based on your feelings. It can change as much as your feelings change, and it has nothing to do with your body. And if your child is in a junior high, high school, elementary school, or whatever, and they decide to say that they're a different gender, and some probably maybe in this room are there right now, the school's going to accept that. The doctor is going to accept that. The psychologist is going to accept it. No one's going to say anything against it. They're going to encourage that instead of having your body define what your gender is, that you should define it with your mind. Because why? Mind, body, dualism. Your body should have no say over who you really are. Chaz Bono tells us, gender is between your ears and not between your legs. But neither scripture nor science agree with that assessment. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 19, 4 through 5. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? <coughs> and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He made them male and female and complementary. That's what that's saying. God made people that way. You don't get to think your way out of what God made. He made them. 
Just as Walt Heyer, who we just talked about, found out, according to Nancy Piercy, says, Mr. Heyer discovered that changing his clothing, hairstyle, social security card, driver's license, and even his genitals did not change who he was. He came to realize that the restoration of my sanity would only come by reversing the gender change and going back to living as the male God had made me to be. In short, by accepting his biological identity as a good gift from God. I was born a man, and I was still a man. My gender never changed. Heyer concludes, in spite of numerous cosmetic surgeries, hormones, makeup, long hair, nail polish, pantyhose, and high heels, the biological fact is that no one can change from one gender to another except in appearance. Our only choice is whether we accept our biological sex as a gift from God or reject it. Science tells us the same thing that Mr. Heyer eventually realized. Piercy writes about a cardiologist named Paula Johnson who said this, every sex has a cell. Every, every cell has a sex. Every sex has a cell? No. Every cell has a sex. And what that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. It means that we're different across all of our organs, from our brains to our hearts to our lungs to our joints. We are male and female all the way through. You can't change that. It's written into your design and God's purpose. It can't be changed. It is a glorious thing to be created a woman. And it is a glorious thing to be created a man. They are gifts from God. Your manhood or womanhood is a gift from God. And to reject that gift is covetousness. It's covetousness. You're saying, God, what you gave me was enough. I want that instead. It's rebellion. Again, so we're clear. This is a temptation that we should be loving people through and speaking the truth in love. Calling people names or demeaning their pain is not the way to love people. It is not what Christ followers are called to do. Think before you say something or post that reactive Facebook repost share about gender bathrooms or whatever it is and make sure that, that what you're sharing and what you're saying is about bringing people to Christ and loving them. But participating in someone else's false view of themselves is not loving either. We should encourage people not to buy into mind-body dualism. That's our job in making disciples. We should encourage and come alongside those who struggle and help them see the beautiful, amazing gift that their God-given gender is. Because it is. Sam Albury, who we talked about earlier, he, he knows a woman who, who has really struggled with anorexia in her life. And he says at different times, this woman has been so thin that it was just dangerous, unhealthy, and whatever. But at the same time that she was so thin, in her mind, she thought of herself as horrifically overweight. And Sam makes this comment. He says, it would not be loving for me to tell her that what she thinks is right. Right? If she says, I'm so overweight and so I'm not going to eat, it's not a loving thing for Sam to say, well, that's your truth. And, I, and I, why, who am I to say anything against it? Because if he does that, what's going to happen? She's going to die. Because he has affirmed her truth. No more is it loving to tell someone who's got gender dysphoric feelings that what's in their mind is what's true and what's in their body that God made is false. Because that's, that's the new cure, right? That's the new way we deal with it. Your gender is in your mind. And therefore, if it's different than what your body is, we'll hack that body up to make it match the mind. Rather than saying, if your gender, if your thoughts in your mind are different than the gender of your body, we'll help you to think better so that your thoughts and feelings match the body that God gave you, which is a glorious gift. That's the job of the church. I know it's not popular. I know you're not going to win any awards at the local public school or public university for talking like this. In fact, you'll probably get things thrown at you. But the fact is, is that we cannot deny 
that God has created these things and created them as good. He said they were good. Male and female, he created them. It was very good. When we say it's not, we reject him. That's the bottom line. As Christ followers, if this is a struggle for you, we'll comfort you and love you in your suffering. We will come alongside you. We will cry with you. We will work with you. We will walk with you, but we will not lie to you. We will not lie to you and encourage you to believe in mind-body dualistic lies so that you can be a little bit more comfortable for the moment and then end up like so many who have sex assignment reassignment surgery who commit suicide at like, I don't even remember how many times the rate of people in the population in general. Those who actually get the surgery, who get what they thought they wanted. And the problem is they find out it wasn't, that wasn't it. That wasn't the problem. And so they give up hope. We're here to bring hope. God loves you. He loves you. I love you. We love you. If this is your struggle, we'll walk with you. But those who are going to follow those temptations, who will reject God, they're rejecting rebelling against God's purpose for their lives. It's true. But before you get too uppity about that, all of us can and have rejected God's plan and purpose for our own lives every time we've sinned. They're not worse than you. I'm going to skip a little bit because I'm out of time here. For those of you who struggle with these temptations, I want to give you some scripture that I'm hoping will will, uh, give you some hope. Romans 8, 18-25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingness, but not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we were saved in this hope, but what? But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Listen, hope and wait for it with perseverance because although our minds and bodies don't work together, look, there's not one of you in here who is born perfectly. You're broken. Sin broke the world. It's broken. Recognize that. Your bodies are all broken at different levels and about different things. So are your minds. It's all jacked up. Christ is making you new. That whole thing about not being conformed to the world but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. What do you do to do that? You give your body a living sacrifice. God is making you new. And eventually, that groaning you feel inside, whether you struggle with transgender stuff or same-sex attraction or whatever, you have sin in you. And that groaning that you feel inside is this groaning that says, God, make me new. Renew this body. Don't get rid of my body. Renew it. That's our hope. People are like heaven and we'll be floating around or whatever. No, heaven is like this except perfect. What would you know how to do without your body? We're going to be restored. Jesus has said he will make all things new. And that should be your hope. And yeah, you can't see it right now. We see through a glass darkly. It's true. But it's coming, and there's hope in Jesus Christ. Sam Williams says that God's plan is more of a rescue mission than a culture war, and I want to be really clear about this. I am not interested in culture wars that are us-them based, where we get into little tribes and talk about the society is all falling apart, and it's all these people's fault. Listen, there is nothing new under the sun. And for those of you who gasped, about the unicorn, uh, gender unicorn that your five-year-old's probably being shown. Why didn't you gasp about Sam Malone? You know who Sam Malone is? Sam Malone was the, was the guy in Cheers. 
in the 80s who was a serial fornicator and had a very low view of women, and we all laughed. Said, this is a funny show. And I'm not saying it wasn't a funny show. But this that you're seeing today, because that was more normal to you, that was more in line with what society was at the time, but this that you're seeing today is the illogical conclusion or next step in sexual freedom that you weren't willing to call out then and now you're all upset about. I'm talking to myself too. We have been frogs in boiling water and the whole way along the way, we make these kind of general, that's bad, this person's bad, whatever, but where were you walking alongside people and helping them to understand? This last generation of kids and we're too afraid to talk about sex in church so they know nothing about what's going on and they get lost in this culture and then by the time we get them back, they're so broken that the amount of healing takes years before they can be successful in ministry. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do for people? We're gonna confess first. Before we ask everybody else to confess, we're gonna confess first our undiscerning, unloving, unmerciful attitudes and thoughts that we've had. And we're going to repent. We're going to turn from that as the church. If this isn't you, fine. Don't worry about it. It's me. We're going to repent. We're going to stop making things us versus them. We're going to repent of treating people who are made in God's image and likeness as if they were the people that made us feel better about ourselves because our sins aren't so bad. Because that's bull. And that's not the gospel. We're going to mourn that there are so many people out there that think the people sitting in this room hate them. We're going to mourn that. That's not Jesus. That's not what he showed. It never was. What have we become? What are we going to become? It's not about yesterday. It's about tomorrow. Jesus loves these people as much as he loves you. Jesus paid for their sins in the same way he paid for yours on that lonely cross that he did not deserve. And we need to get that message of hope to them. I, I got more, but I, I gotta, we're out of time. Come back next week. Love each other. I love you. I will pour myself out for you and for the lost people of this world. I don't expect lost people to act like anything but lost people, but I expect something of those who have been saved. Let's get a heart. Let's remember what's really happening out there. Pastor Dave was talking in, in, in Insights this morning about, about this little bit. There are billions of people who are going to hell right now. Be careful how much time we spend playing video games, watching football, whatever it is that we do. I'm not saying those are bad things, and I'm not here to make you, oh, I can't play video games anymore because people are going to hell. Just relax. I, am, I can't imagine how guilty you're going to feel next time you pull up, I don't know, Mario Brothers. or I'm old. <laughs> Listen. Ask God what it looks like to love and do it. Let him perfect our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've done this week in our midst. Thank you for giving us a week to rest and, and beautiful snow. And I pray that you would make this week effective. Lord, I just pray that we would not leave here. If you've stirred our hearts, we would not leave here and let that go away. Don't let the enemy, don't let Satan, don't let demonic forces in the heavenly places come in and take away the joy that we have when we think about bringing people to know you. Let it drive us. Let it compel us forward. Let us suffer in our own hearts every day for those who are lost, to remember what it was like to be lost, to have that struggle, to have that hopelessness, that apathy. Let us seek you, Lord. Let us know you. I pray for those who are sick. I pray for those who've lost loved ones. I thank you that I have two new little baby cousins that were born, that are healthy, you are such a good God. There is so much adventure and there is so much to love about you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just pour out that knowledge on the people in this room and the people who will listen to this sermon. 
for however long it exists, Lord, help people to know what a joy it is to serve you. Even in the pain, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil for you're with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Comfort us this week, Lord. We love you. Help us to serve you. Help us to love others. In your name, amen. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, It really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or through SoundCloud so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.